Pod. 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 Welcome back to Say Who Say Pod. He's Danny O'Neill. I'm Christian Capel, and by golly, Danny, there is a college football game involving the Washington Huskies on Saturday afternoon at 12.30, 12.30 p.m. Pacific time. They are still allowed to play games in that time slot, it turns out. How uh, how fired up are you? I'm pretty pumped. Uh, I was planning to make my way back uh, to to Husky Stadium for that game. It's actually not going to work out with my schedule, so unfortunately I'm not going to be back there for it. But I would imagine well, it's probably about 12.10 or so when the Huskies will gather in the tunnel and start chanting that, or is it is it even closer to like 12.20 that that'll happen? That's a good question, because kickoff's not 12.30. It's like 12.37 or something, right? So <laughs> It is. I just had a flash... Do you think somebody will put their hands like uh, the the usher there at the tunnel will put his hand <laughs> to to Kalen DeBoer's chest? <laughs> you know, like if there's one coach in the country who would just politely be like, "Hey, could you could you maybe take your hand off me, please?" <laughs> it's hey, such oh, that still is so funny to see Sark because that's not something that most people identify. Like he's considered kind of this laid back Southern Californian, but he's got that part of him that not many people have seen where there is this little hair trigger, like sort of where he just goes volcanic. And it was in that moment before the Alamo Bowl that he did just that. I don't envision Washington starting its season that way. I think, uh, <laughs> I think there will be a a restrained uh, tunnel entrance. They'll be they'll be pumped, but I don't think Kalen DeBoer is going to scream at anybody. There's a little bit of a surprise at one of the starting guard positions, which I didn't expect. I kind of thought that we we knew where all the starters were going to be, but that's one of the things that happened this past week. Parker Brailsford is is it sounds like is going to be the the starter there at right guard. Yeah, um, you know. At the end of spring, I'd have found it really hard to believe that those guards weren't going to be Nate Kalepo and Julius Bulow. And I kind of thought that about halfway through camp. But I don't know. The more that they mixed Brailsford in and practices that we saw and Garen Hatchett, too, and the more that like Scott Huff and Ryan Grubb both talked about those jobs as being open and up for grabs, I think like any other coaching staff, you'd say, yeah, okay, they're saying that, but look who's getting the reps, you know. But they're, these guys are willing to say when a starting job is locked up. So I kind of started to think, well, you know, maybe I'm still going to project these guys because that's who's taking the most snaps. But you did see Brailsford get more work and more work and more work, and, like, we know they love him. I mean, they just are effusive about the guy, and they have been since spring. He gets the uh, the coveted, um, Kalen DeBoer describes him as a, a really good football player which is, a, I think, a, a coveted description coming from the head football coach uh, that, you know, hey, this guy, he's not, he's not just uh, big and strong and pushes guys around. Like, he really understands the game. You know, forget about his size. He can just play. He's, he, he knows what he's doing. And, and, you know, they talk about how often he shows up on practice clips that they show to the team and that they kind of hold him up as, hey, this is, this is how you do your job. Um, his teammates have talked about him since since he arrived is like, OK, like this guy, this guy's kind of got something special. Um, Scott Huff describes him as like more weight room. I, I was asking him about comparisons to Nick Harris just because of the size thing. And he said that, you know, Brailsford is just really, really strong. Uh, weight room strong one of their stronger guys so which you kind of have to be right I mean you're 6'2 275 pounds playing offensive line at the power five level like you got to have some like pretty special traits that account for for that size difference and then by all accounts it seems like they, re- they really think that he does I view the change in the depth chart as a positive thing based on this is a younger guy who's played his way into that spot as opposed to a situation you have where Maybe somebody didn't take the step forward that was projected or wasn't. I mean, it, I I kind of view it as when you've got someone who's a redshirt freshman who pushes and makes that spot that he basically forces the issue there as opposed to them not getting what they wanted out of, out of who maybe we expected to be there. 
Yeah, I mean, they said it was really close between, and it sounds like Kalepo is going to start at left guard, which is interesting because he'd been taking reps at right guard uh, all through spring and camp. So it's that's an interesting uh, flip there. And it sounds like Julius Bulow is going to play some at least, and that Garen Hatchett is still right there. So, I mean, Grubb said it was really close between Brailsford, Kalepo, and Bulow in particular. And, um, yeah, I mean, just it feels like they're going with kind of the the young upside. And, you know, he said Brailsford was their top-graded guard in camp. So it's kind of hard to argue against that. Um, I'm interested to see how he holds up against against college D-linemen uh, on the interior there. It's always funny with offensive linemen because you never fully know. Like, you never fully know, like, exactly how it's going to pan out once the season starts when you've got a guy like Brailsford who you haven't seen play before because I mean they haven't you haven't had live tackling drills really right like you haven't you haven't had the sort of uh, unadulterated pass rush where the quarterback can get hit it's also funny because O-line it's not the only like secondary you usually don't have rotations but like your O-line they don't rotate in and out which I've always found kind of interesting and I understand why it, why it is because of the importance of communication and being able to understand how the guy next to you is going to play like you don't want to disrupt that continuity but I've always thought like that there's not as much reason to not have a pass specializing offensive line or a run specializing like basically have units like you do uh, at other parts like a personnel grouping coaches just never do that and I've always thought so I, I I tend to like it when you see guys rotate in and see if somebody's if somebody's playing better and where you don't have the same five guys out there for every snap over the course of the game. They did that some last year. Um, as much as they liked Corey Luciano and thought you know he was really a, an ideal fit for them at center, and he was. Um, they still gave Mateo Mele some snaps, and I think Luciano maybe was. Maybe that was injury related, like he was a little banged up, and they they wanted to just take a little bit off of his plate. Um, but he, they gave melee snaps, they gave Kalepo some snaps. So I, that was, and that was sort of the first time I'd really seen that sort of thing last year of an offensive line that played really on, you know, performed really well all season. And maybe there were a little, you know, some couple things here and there where they thought, ah, oh, like this isn't getting done to to our standard. Let's Let's give somebody else a crack. I don't know. But um, it did seem like they wanted to involve more guys um, up front last year. And you're not going to see that at tackle. Uh, mm-hmm. I don't think you're going to see that at center necessarily. But that left guard and right guard spot, I mean, it'll be interesting to kind of monitor, you know. If I think if Parker Brailsford goes out and just balls out against Boise State and is clearly their best guard, like I don't expect to see him come off the field a lot. Um I get the sense that the other spot is probably closer and they had been high on Julius Bulow. Um, I'm not sure, you know, like you said, maybe it was more a positive development of just, Hey, nothing happened with Julius Bulow. Parker Brailsford has just been so good that, you know, he's got to be out there, but we'll see, we'll see how those other guys do when they, they get their chance. I'm curious to see, it kind of feels like Landon Hatchet, their true freshman center. He's listed as the backup center. Grubb did say that right now, if something happened to Mateo Melee, they'd move Brailsford over, and he'd be he'd he'd probably be their first backup center. Um, so I it, it does kind of sound like they don't expect Landon Hatchet to redshirt though. So I wonder really, I wonder if you might see him um, on special teams. If you might see him get some turns uh, on the O line if. The score is right, at least early in the season, uh, but they are they are very very high on him from a from a pretty young age here. A true freshman in the offensive line, like that's mm-hmm. that's wild to think that he's probably going to play because that means th- they they think he's going to be really good. Otherwise, you're not. I mean, even if that's that's a pretty high vote of confidence to to think that he's he's going to get on the field as a true freshman did trey adams play as a true freshman he did and uh nick harris did and nick harris was came absolutely out of nowhere to play as a true freshman at like 270 at guard and he took his lumps he took his lumps as a true freshman 
uh, especially in that college football playoff game against Alabama. But you saw, I mean, you, you, you know now, of course, in hindsight, the kind of player that they saw and the potential that they saw in him and why he was able to get on the field so early. And I think there are some parallels with, with Parker Brailsford there, although he does at least have a, a redshirt year under his belt. Yeah, um, eh, it's going to be – I'm I'm excited to see how the, how the offensive line looks because I think we know how a lot of the rest of – of the offense is going to pan out. I guess you'll see a little more Dylan Johnson and how the running back rotation is going to sort out. But that, that offense is something that I feel like we, we have a pretty good handle on what that's, what that's going to look like this season. Yeah. The O-line really is kind of the, like, are they going to be good enough on the interior to, I, again, I hesitate to say replicate or sustain what they did last year, because I mean, who's, who's given up seven sacks two years in a row, you know, but can they be can they be good enough? Can they approximate what they were last year with this new personnel? And that's other than that, the only questions, like you said, are running back. We'll see. Can Dylan Johnson stay healthy? Is Will Nixon going to be the number two guy? Are they really going to mix in all those others? It sounds like they're they're they want to use a number of guys back there at least early on. So we could could see some Richard Newton, some Richard Newton action. You have stumbled into one of my favorite uh, opinions about football, which is that sacks are a quarterback stat, Christian. Yeah. The, the, we... the seven sacks allowed last year certainly does re- reflect the, the quality of offensive line, but it also, I don't think it's as unlikely as, as you might necessarily assume because you got the same quarterback coming back. And, That's true. and I, I believe a quarterback's decision-making and like their, their willingness to get – and ability to get rid of the ball quickly is the number one. It, it, more than the quality of the offensive line is what determines the number of sacks a team suffers. You've been talking to Pete Carroll again. <laughs> Does Pete say that? What? Well, wasn't wasn't that kind of the subtext to the Russell Wilson era that like he he held onto the ball too long and that for sure. He, but Pete never said it. Like the offensive linemen were the one that would say it because they would feel. And I felt like Pete until his dying breath would not basically say like the reason we perennial are toward the top of the league in sacks is because our quarterback holds the ball forever. Do you <laughs> like, think that perhaps privately he came to believe that? Oh, for sure. There's, there's just no doubt about it. Um, there were a couple things. The other thing that Pete never let on about the Russell Wilson era was that the issues with them constantly going up against the play clock. Like I chalked that up to Pete's disorganized sideline. It's like, they don't, they they have too many layers of communication and they don't get the play in early enough. And then as soon as Russ went to Denver, it was like, they're running up against the play clock. I was like, no, no, it's actually the quarterback. Like he, 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 he doesn't, he doesn't get the goose from to flip that to Washington. Penix is extremely efficient. <laughs> like his decisiveness and his ability to get the team up and ready to go on the play is it's outstanding and it has been since the beginning. And I guess that's understandable because he's been in this offense for so long. Yeah. I think they, by the way, that sounded like a fight club line. Pete's disorganized sideline. I am Pete's disorganized (laughs) sideline. His sideline is nuts. They came up against the play clock probably a few times too many last year. Like there were a couple timeouts they had to burn and like a delay game they had to, but when you, when you take it down to one second, because you you reshuffled the entire formation and you moved all your receivers around because of something you saw on the defense and you're you're getting big plays you're getting wide open receivers you're getting mismatches you're maybe scoring some touchdowns off of that i think that they'll live with the 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 delay game penalty here or there i do think they want to clean some of that up this year i mean i think that's sort of a a priority for washington's defense this is going to be all about the ability to stop the run right like that's the thing to watch for on Saturday is going to be like, how does this defense stack up against a team that pretty clearly is going to want to run the ball against them? I think so. Um, I can't, you know, hear, here's some buzz out of Boise that they, excuse me, Boise. It's a soft S. Uh, <laughs> it's important to get it right. Do they, do they get sensitive about it? Boise? They want Boise? I don't know that they do, but someone who's from Idaho told me a long time ago that it was kind of an annoyance. Like, it's not Boise with a Z, that it's Boise. So it's a, it's an S. You pronounce the S like an S. Similar to the name Leslie, uh, 
gets pronounced Leslie a lot of times, like as if it's a Z, but it's not. So that's how I, that's kind of how I remember it in my, my brain. Um, so the, the, the Boise, not Boise State Broncos. I, I, I've been, you know, kind of hear some buzz out of their camp that they expect Taylor Green to be a lot more mature as a passer this year, maybe more effective through the air. He already threw for a couple thousand yards last season. But, you know, if, if he's improved in that aspect of his game and you're talking about this 6'6", have you seen him run? Have you watched his highlights? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I mean... It's not just that he's mobile; like he's huge. He's a big a dude, huge target. Um, I could see him being, you know, tough to wrangle, even if if you get a a hand or two on him. So he's running around. You've got two really good running backs: one who's kind of the steady senior veteran, one who's a little more explosive, and I think people people believe kind of has a higher ceiling. Ashton Genty, and. And then maybe Taylor Green takes a step forward, being able to throw the ball. Like you're talking about a pretty legit offense, but yeah, I think you're right. It does. It, it's it's going to come down to can they stop the run? And you know they they feel strongly about uh, Ulamo Ale coming back for his second year as a D lineman. They think he's going to take a really big step as a senior. They think he knows the plays better. That he's he's you know kind of wreaks havoc there in the middle. They loved the camp that he had. And then Edifu on Ulafosio, I see, is another kind of key ingredient that they didn't really have last year. He came back at the end of the year, but you know they've got him fully healthy. He's a starter. He's a leader. He's a captain, all those things. Um, those are two guys in the middle of that defense who I would kind of identify as really crucial to to stopping the run. And we're going to see, yeah, right away, we're going to see. You know, are they – because this wasn't like a bad run defense last year. Um, no. In terms of yards per rush allowed, they were up there in the Pac-12. If you look at some of the advanced metrics, um, stuff like success rate and EPA per rush allowed, the 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 metrics didn't love them. Um, oh, 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 look at Christian busting out some EPA. Yeah, just some cutting yeah. edge analytics for you. Yeah, we're we're moving past SP, SP plus. They, we're we're way advanced. EPA. EPA is generally the best way to measure things like and people that don't know expected points allowed like it is it is an assessment of how much did this play increase your team's chance of scoring. Um, It's it's it it is by far the best way to measure offensive efficiency and in turn like your defense's ability and it filters out some of the it filters out what I consider to be junk plays that plays that don't actually impact the the likelihood of scoring um i've heard some coaches think that it underestimates staying on schedule but i think i think that's kind of tied to the outdated like well if you average three yards a carry you'll gain a first down every single time like (laughs) i think i think epa is the best and it makes sense that washington struggled in epa even it, even against the run because of because of how porous their and the, the the fact that teams could get big plays against them throwing the ball meant that Washington had to shift a lot of its defense um, even even in even in situations that called for the run. So they ranked um, they did they led the Pac-12 in yards per rush allowed three point five two, hundred and twenty one yards a game on a. A little over 34 carries a game. They gave up 14 rushing touchdowns, which which was also the fewest in the conference. But uh, CFB graphs, if you want to look at it yourself, at cfb-graphs.com, uh, where I go for, for college EPA info. They had Washington 94th nationally in defensive EPA per rush, EPA allowed per rush. So that's a pretty big gulf between their yards per carry allowed, which I think for, for years, that's kind of been like the mainstream stat that you look at. Just if you want a really quick, just easy glimpse of how does this team defend the run, you look at that. But um, the, to me, that says that's a lot of short yardage first downs given up. You know, that's a lot of third and two and your opponent ran for three yards. So it's a successful play, but it goes in the books as a three-yard rush, which if that's your average, it's really good, but you still it still constituted a failure for the defense. Um, so probably just a lot of, you know, 
a lot of situational plays where because of their pass defense and their defense generally, they weren't in a favorable position against the sticks for most of the season and teams didn't need to rip off six or seven yards a pop on the ground to constitute a success against. That's just my, my quick guess. You could go through and chart it and it, it would, it would be easy enough to see, but um, that's a, like EPA is a little, maybe it's, it's a little harder to get your arms around. It is for, for me sometimes, but success rate is really simple, right? Like measuring, Hey, was, was this rush a success or not? Did they, did they gain whatever it is? 40% of the yards to go on first down, 60% of the yards to go on second down and on third or fourth down, did they get a first down? And I think that's a, that's a really easy way of looking at how effective a team's rushing offense is without getting fooled uh, by the, the yards per rush numbers. Yeah. Though I'm the still going to cite yards per rush because it's, it's easy. It's easy. To it look is at. easy. And it it's not, it's not terrible, but what it doesn't give you that Washington's defense is precisely the kind of defense where it can be misleading because you had a team that scores a ton of points, which is going to sort of in and of itself dilute the frequency with which an opponent runs. Like they're not going to want to, if they've got to, if they've got to play catch up because that the, their opponent has scored so many points, they're, they're likely not going to run the ball. The second part is that if it's as easy and effective to pass against Washington's defense as it was, if that is, you're going to do that more. You're going to have fewer attempts. And then just what Christian mentioned, that what constitutes a success isn't necessarily a four-yard carry. What you want to know about a defense is when it gets stops. Good defenses get stops. Good defenses put opposing offenses in positions where it's hard for them to get first downs. And Washington's defense, by pretty much every measure, struggled to do that last season. And it's not as simple as saying, like, okay, it was the run defense was okay. It was the pass defense that was awful. Not it it all kind of works together. And Washington's what Washington wants to be able to and needs to be able to take away what an opponent wants to do. And in this game with Boise, it's going to be they're gonna want to run the ball in part to keep the ball away from Washington's offense and in part because that's that's prob- that looks like it's going to be the strength of their team. So we're going to get a chance to see how Washington measures up against that. That was uh, something DeBoer mentioned during the season last year too, was that like, hey, look, we score a ton of points, so these teams are going to throw it a bunch. Um, with that said, they're just for comparison's sake. So they were, they were 94th against the run um, in terms of EPA allowed per rush they were 126th against the pass so still uh still quite the gulf there i don't think that was last in the pac-12 though because arizona was a team um do you think do you think people are going to miss the pac-12 when it's gone <laughs> or maybe was 128th and that's or maybe you'll be able to see you'll maybe you'll be able to see all of the pac 12 teams they'll still be clustered together in the defensive standings <laughs> <laughs> you know what we so i'm in um for folks who remember Bud Withers, I feel like we mentioned Bud Withers on this podcast like every other week. Patron uh, saint of college football writers in the Northwest. Yes. He still runs a, a Pac-12 fantasy league that I'm in and have been in for the last, I don't know, six years or so, seven years maybe. Um, and I was kind of thinking, I haven't talked to him about this, but I was kind of thinking like, well, this is it, right? Like this is the end of the Pac-12. But if there's any format where it doesn't matter if they're still in the same league or not, it's fantasy football, right? Oh, we can just fantastic. roll forward picking from the same 12 teams if we oh, want that's to. that's great. It doesn't need to go away, right? We don't need to disband it. Oh, that's it. awesome. That's a great idea. I don't know how down he'll be. I'm going to pitch that. I, I, I haven't talked with him about it. I wasn't. Uh, I had to phone into our draft. I wasn't able to make it in person this year, but uh, that's a uh, that's a thought. I'm going to say this, Christian. If he's not going to do it, you've got to. Yeah, I could. I'll help I think do he'll some be of the down. heavy lifting of any organization if if Bud's going to vacate that. It's obviously Bud's league, but that's that's fantastic to think about. I bet. I bet he'll be. I bet he'll be down for it. And you, um, then you know, you could you could even like kick out Colorado and Utah. <laughs> or, or Arizona and Arizona State. Dude, you need you... well, it's a twelve person league, so you need twelve teams for the for the the position and stuff to work out. But yeah, have you been following any of the Dion conversation over the past week? I saw there was a big 
story on ESPN.com about what he's trying to accomplish where he was he was quoted as talking about culture, culture. Everybody talks about culture. I don't even know what they mean about that. And then he made a point about like, I don't even think you have to have unity to, yeah. for a team to be good. You just need good players. And I was like, I swear to God, I saw somebody just like you being Captain Tough Guy a couple weeks ago doing this whole like, if one of us fights, we all fight. We're going to go out there and brawl um, after after something happened in one of their practices. Um, I'm... I, I'm 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 fascinated to see how this is going to play out. I mean, I have my opinions of how I think it's going to play out, but it's going to be very interesting to watch it. The unity comment is very interesting. Um, I can just see football coaches everywhere cringing at, at that. I, I think in football, more than any other sport, I think unity is more important in football than any other sport, right? I mean, it you're on the field together with 10 other guys at a given moment. If one person does their job wrong, it looks like the worst thing in the world. Um, it's violent. It's physical. It's taxing. It's exhausting. If you don't truly like care about and love to some degree, all the other guys doing it with you, are you going to do it as hard? Are you going to now, maybe there's other ways to motivate that, uh, that Dion is is tapping into that that we're not aware of. We'll see. I mean, I I think all he's done is take what every coach believes already to the extreme, which is that like it the dudes are are the most important thing. Getting dudes mm-hmm. is the most important thing. And maybe he's maybe he's embellishing a little bit and doesn't actually believe that unity doesn't matter. It's just that hey, like when I'm putting together a football team, I'm not thinking about unity. I'm thinking about how can I get the very best players at every position? And I mean, obviously that was his priority. He came in and like told most of the team to get lost. So I, I, I don't know. I, some of that I think is, is Dion brand building in a way mm-hmm. that uh, maybe doesn't necessarily reflect like how he actually runs his program. He's got, you know, long time yes, he assistance. Does. He's got his offensive coordinator was a head coach at Kent state for the last several years. Like you think that his assistants aren't, aren't breeding unity, aren't trying to build cohesion. I mean, I, I think all, all of his coaches know how important that is. I would guess he knows it's important too, honestly. Like I, I don't think that he just doesn't think he needs to build a cohesive team. Um, but that is, those remarks are, it's, I mean, it's all, it's all going to look really bad if they go out and get steamrolled by TCU. I'll say that. Yeah. So here's my theory on Dion. I think Dion is more of of an influencer than a conventional head football coach. I think that the framework to understand Dion is as someone who is interested and very adept at training attention on himself. And that doesn't mean he won't be a a good head football coach because I think that his willingness and his ability to do that is going to get a lot of talented players to go there. And for me, the question is going to be what happens when they lose? Because my feeling is that Dion is not going to handle losing very well and that there is going to be a lot of deflection and very little sort of raising my hand and I'm responsible, at least not in a consistent long term. And I think that that can be poisonous for for a team. I, I, I think teams can, in, in any sport, teams can thrive while being dysfunctional. Like, I, I don't think this, the Seattle Seahawks in 2013 were the most harmonious team. Like, there were fights, there were difficulties, but they all shared, like, kind of this common goal. When you get a situation where players on the team feel that one guy is elevating their own interests at the expense of the other people, that's when I think things can turn toxic. I think that's what's going to happen there. I might be wrong. And and it, behind closed doors, he mo- might be entirely different. But Dion has a really long track record of, I mean, going back to the 80s. Like, he basically, he it was his own version, but he was... He was a caricature. Like he made himself into uh, prime time. His whole identity was built around attracting attention to himself and it worked and he's an awesome player and he's kind of continued to do that and 
certainly since becoming the head coach at Jackson State and now at Colorado, like that's that's his MO. He's going to get attention. He's going to let cameras in. He's going to film things. He's going to say things that get attention. I don't know if Dion has any opinions about culture. I think he has opinions on how to get headlines. So he's going to disagree, disagree with people and say sort of somewhat outlandish or outrageous things because he wants attention. And I think they're going to get talent. I don't, I don't know if you can be a successful football team or at least a successful college team without having some guys that you improve over the course of their time there. I don't think it can just mm. be talent. Like you need, you have to be able to get, get the talent for sure, but you also need to be able to develop it and take some of the, you have to take some of the three stars and turn them into four stars or some of the four stars and turn them into five stars. It's not just a, Hey, we get the most talented guys here. Um, that's, I'll, I'll now dismount my soapbox. That's my opinion on, on, on Team Dion. If he's there five seasons, that'll be interesting to track because, you know, you, you saw like Lincoln Riley at USC last year, how, yeah, you can flip a roster with transfers. And especially if one of them's the Heisman winning quarterback, that helps. Um, but there's been, like, I, you know, reading Bud Elliott's blue chip ratio story every year. And that the teams that recruited at uh, recruited out of high school at a level um, that are at, where they can actually like have a chance to win a national championship, um, and and his threshold for that is at, at least half of your high school signees in the last four classes have to be four or five star recruits. Um, that's a threshold Washington was over for I want to say three consecutive seasons, maybe two, um, and, and is well below now. But uh, he he kind of wrote this year and maybe last year too, that, you know, he's, he's hesitant to factor transfers into his blue chip ratio because he said, for the most part, teams are not competing for national championships through the transfer portal, that the teams that are heavy on transfers are first year coaches trying to flip the roster and get from below 500 to above 500 overnight or coaches on the hot seat trying to save their job. And that, you know, like I, I think as an example, Georgia didn't take a single transfer this year. Um, you know, Georgia and Alabama and Ohio State, like it's not like those schools never take transfers, don't go in the portal at all. They do if there's like an elite player there who wants to come to Alabama, wants to come to Ohio State. But they're still signing huge high school classes like they they know that the build toward a national title, the build toward a roster that's talented enough to compete with those five or six other teams that are actually capable of doing it comes through high school and through development. So I don't know why that is. I don't know if that will always be true. I don't know if you'll see like a shift away from that as the years go on. Um, you know, maybe there is something to be said for, getting some vet, like, you know, look at Chip Kelly's approach. They don't care about high school recruiting, right? And they, they do where it makes sense. They do if they can get five-star Dante Moore in at quarterback yeah. and, you know, maybe some other guys to help. But, geez, he lost Zach Charbonnet, came as a transfer from Michigan. Awesome running back. He's in the NFL now. Go out and get Carson Steele from Ball State. Uh, lost Jake Bobo, transfer from Duke. Great receiver for them last year. He's in the NFL. On a 53-man roster now, I hear. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, he did make it. Go out and take J. Michael Sturdivant from Cal. Backfill. Transfer. There you go. So, uh, you know, Leatu Latu from Washington. That's a little bit of a different case, but still a transfer. Still a guy they didn't recruit out of high school and an all-conference guy for them. Potential All-American this year. Um, but UCLA is not a national championship contender. So maybe that's more that more proves the point. Um, but I don't know. I, I, I just... With D, what's Dion's... He, he's broken down the math that he wants like a certain percentage of high school recruits, a certain percentage of Juco and a certain percentage from the portal and the portal percentage is like crazy high. I, I just, think he's, I think he's making that up. Yeah. Like, I, I, if, if they try to adhere to that, like I just, I don't know if that's, if that's a sustainable way to build a, a conference championship contender. Maybe it is in the big 12 where there's no Washington, there's no Oregon. Um, there won't be a USC in your way. So we'll, we'll see, but yeah, it's 9 a.m. Saturday, man. It, we'll, we'll find out. I'm very, I actually, you know, I'm a, a, a there everywhere a week. I'd kind of want the Huskies to play later in the day. It's, it's this one. So I don't have to drive up to Seattle while that game's going on. Cause I'd like to watch it, but, um, it'll be fascinating.
Does Sonny Dykes have it in him to run it up on Dion? Like if he can? I don't know. Is Sonny Dykes a run it up guy? I feel like no. He, Sonny Dykes is like an, just an eminently like friendly and reasonable yes. human being. Correct. Like that's his entire MO, right? Like he's willing to take a shot on anything, doesn't have any strong opinions or, or like it seems like he's not someone that gets mad real easily. That's my impression of Sonny Dykes. Yeah. Uh, had wide, wide, wide open practices when he was at mm-hmm. Cal. Yep. And was just like, and we would talk about it and be like, yeah, I don't, I don't care. Whatever. Was willing to go that to way. Cal. That's that? not, was willing to go to Cal. Like yeah. that was when, when I saw that, I was like, I don't know if, Mike Leach would not coach at Cal. I mean, for a variety of reasons, but like someone from that offensive background, like coming to a place where there is, uh, I joke about Stanford feeling, having mixed emotions about having an athletic department or an intercollegiate athletic department, or at least a football team. Like Cal is somewhere where there is like the actual spirit of like sort of nonconformity and anti-authoritarianism runs through that entire campus. Like there's no doubt about that. And Sonny Dex is like, yeah, Go on, we'll, we'll try it. We'll run the air raid. We'll see how it goes. Didn't go that well for him, but it wasn't because he was, like, too controlling. Yeah. Um, really good good job, Cal. Fire Sonny Dykes. <laughs> and he's got his team in the national championship game at TCU. <laughs> yeah. uh, Stanford and Cal, do you think they're, they're going to end up in the ACC? It sure seems like the momentum is shifting that way. I yeah. mean, it just, like, I don't know. The way this story's been reported, is there any other outcome but they end up they end up there? Like it kind of felt like that even when the reports were, oh, they don't have the votes. They're a vote shy or whatever. Like it just I don't know. It it seems like the only reason it's still occupying space in our like on the internet is is because it's it's gonna happen eventually. It's totally stupid, but what I mean, what what is what's what's what does stupid matter anymore? This is yeah. whatever. I would like to point out, um, that I think it's really funny that Notre Dame has been chiming in about trying to get, uh, <laughs> trying to trying to get uh, Stanford, Stanford and Cal there because I was like, why why would anyone listen to what Notre Dame has to say when they won't join you in football? <laughs> like, why why would you why would you why would you do that? Like, why hey, you know what? Full voting member. Yeah, we're not. We're not going to hear what you have to say. Teams that don't play football in our conference don't get to have any say in this. So you pipe down. Pipe down. We don't need to hear from you. It is hilarious that Florida State is making all this noise about wanting out and they don't get enough money and they're not treated fairly. And then Notre, Notre Dame, which does it, will not even join the conference to play football, is like, mm, add Cal and Stanford. <laughs> it's great. Uh, I do. Whenever those things come up, I just... I think the appropriate response to like Florida State's complaint is is really to just indirectly start referencing the rationale for every player being happy with a scholarship. Like, oh, so you don't think that all members of sort of a, a an enterprise should be compensated equally with with an option like mm. you feel that like more value should be given to someone who's carrying like a larger proportion of the responsibility for the success. Like you, 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 you don't think this should be a, like everyone gets what they're given and is happy for it. Cause that's really interesting. Yeah. You look, you want to be, you want to be anti-socialism in college sports. You got to take it the whole way. Exactly. No half measures. Be, can't just be anti-socialist with, uh, with the TV revenue. Yeah. Speaking of crass commercialism, I opened my, Sunday, New York Times, and on the back of one of the six, the one of the sections was an absolutely awful advertisement. It said Bo Dacious, and then there was a picture of Bo Nix. Don't you kind of love it though? I, I do. What I find funniest is however much money whoever from Oregon spent on that, like you would be better off setting it on fire. Because I can't think of a city in this country that cares less about college football than New York City. I mean, I know that the Heisman's here and there's the downtown athletic club. Nobody up here gives a rip about college football at all. The only people that care about college 
football or people from other places, uh, such as me, who's going to go to a UW bar on Saturday to watch the Boise State game. So I, it, it amused me when I saw it. Also, see, it's a terrible, it's a terrible name, isn't it? Bodacious. Like, isn't that yeah. Bill and Ted's excellent adventure jargon? Maybe. I. The thing is, you Bodacious. saw it. Bodacious. You saw it, and now you're talking about it. <laughs> and now, the legions, the the millions of of listeners to say who say pod, they're gonna they're they're gonna hear about it. So it gets people talking. And the bill, have you seen the billboard? Uh, have I haven't seen the billboard. the billboard. Where's the Where's the billboard supposed to be? I haven't. Uh, it's it in It's in New York. Um, okay, I'll find out. I'll take a picture of it. I'll take a picture of it and I'll deface it somehow in the picture. Um, I've got some. I've got some techniques for for making it look like something else is happening around the the billboard, so I'll do that. Um, do you think Ian McFarland of the University of Oregon Athletic Department was responsible for the bodacious advertising campaign? I think IP McFarland was responsible for it. No, it's, no, 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 no. That no, sounds like something I, he would do. He, now, he, no, look, someone someone has an idea, thinks I want to put Bonex on a billboard, but I don't know these guys at Nike. I. Eh. They, what have they ever done for us? You know, what have they ever done for the University of Oregon? We 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 need we need someone to to, to who who really gets it, who can connect us to the the proper firm that has experience putting billboards in both Manhattan and Dallas. Now, that's what I think happened. What what I think maybe happened is that they did contact IP McFarland, but they were they they were contacting IP McFarland, thinking it was the Ian McFarland of the. University of Oregon Athletics Department, as opposed to Ian McFarland, uh, matchmaker extraordinary guy, it's always worth having a conversation with. And when they got the wrong Ian McFarland, or the the right Ian McFarland, who just wasn't the specific Ian McFarland they were looking for, Ian advised them on a way to spend uh, their money in a way that would be least impactful as possible, which which was an advertisement in the New York Times. Which maybe I shouldn't be saying, given that my wife's employed there. <laughs> maybe this is going to come back and bite me horrifically in the butt for mocking the effectiveness of some sort of so, some sort of advertising campaign. But I, I like to think that our Ian McFarland of IPMcFarland.com would be willing to have a little bit of fun. Um, though I guess I've never followed through on that. Like when somebody's mistaken me for the other Danny O'Neill, like I've never fully committed to the bit and really really leaned into sort of not abuse it, not, not correcting them on their mistake and, and said like outrageously insulting things about the university of Oregon. I just let it stand. So maybe I'm all talk. Well, there's, there's now the, the Danny O'Neill high school quarterback recruit too. Who's committed to Dion. That's right. Yeah. So, you know, you can, you can go either way. Probably probably want to try to impersonate the Oregon quarterback but <laughs> I wish nothing but the best for the young Danny O'Neill uh that 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 is regardless of where he goes to school and I hope that if he does attend the university or attends Colorado under Dion that, that he thrives there it's worth a conversation with Ian McFarland here is his question for us this week my question this week is very simple say who say what Say who say dogs ate some bad something something. Say who? Say what? Say who say dogs ate some bad something something. Pod. (laughs) That's my contribution. Is there more buildup to this Husky season than there was in 2016? Uh, I think so. 2017 might be might be the comparison just because they they'd been to the playoff they were bringing so many guys back Jake Browning you know they had the quarterback right and they they lost John Ross and they lost Buddha and Sidney Jones and Kevin King to the NFL but I think everyone kind of still knew that their defense would be pretty special but I don't know it, it it's weird because they're I think they're they're not ranked as high as they were in 2017 preseason but it feels like there's more buzz it feels like and I think it all starts with Michael Penix Jr. That the that they have the quarterback. They they have the quarterback that can get them to the playoff if if things break their way. They have the offensive talent. Um, I don't know that there was that belief in their in their offensive skill talent in 2017. Like everyone knew Miles Gaskin was really good, and that's kind of what they don't have, right? They don't have the stud running back 
Um, but you know, priorities have changed. I think that's, that's less important now, especially in with the scheme that they run. Um, it would have been interesting to see how miles Gaskin fit into this offense though, how they might've used him. Yeah. Uh, I, I just, I don't think that confidence in Browning was as high as confidence in Penix is. And Browning didn't have the receivers they have. So I just, like, I think this offense is so, um, it's so well suited to modern college football that you're kind of seeing the, the corresponding optimism. So I think that's a really, like, there's a lot to unpack there. The first part, this, this Husky team has certainly lost, lost less than that Husky team did, right? Like they've had, they've had guys move on to the pros and Jackson Kirkland's going to be missed for, there's no doubt about that. But this team is is bringing back more. Even though, I mean, Vita Vea stayed after that. Like I, I thought, I thought Vita Vea could have left, and I'm not sure how much it helped his stock. I'm sure it did some, but he, he's, I think he's a first round pick. Even if he leaves after that 2016 season, he's just such a physically dominant player. Um, they're they're losing less, and I think you're right about because I'm trying to put myself back into the, the what did I think of Browning coming out of that, that second, his sophomore season. Because after his first season, what I felt was Jake Browning was better than anybody had any right to expect from a true freshman quarterback playing in the Pac-12. And I, I felt that pretty much right away, even when they lost that early game to, to Boise State. And then when they beat, when they beat USC in what turned out to be Sark's final game, like I really felt like, man... They're really fortunate. This guy's, he's way better than you should expect from a, from a, a true freshman quarterback. And then the second year was like, oh, wow. Like he really, really might have something. But I wondered if he hurt his arm in the middle of the year. Like I, I thought that he, he was not throwing the ball as well toward the end of the year. And then in the loss to Alabama, my conclusion really was that, okay, if, if you're, if Washington is going to beat a team with a defense like Alabama's, if Washington is going to beat a team with an elite SEC defense, you're going to, you're going to need a quarterback that can really change and dominate a game. Kind of like Deshaun Watson did. Like you're going to need somebody like that. Um, I think there was still the, the thought that, that Browning was, was, was progressing though, and that he could step into that role. Um, but I don't know. Am I wrong? I mean, I think there was, but I, it was probably more optimistic than just like firm belief, right? Like if, if Michael Penix Jr. doesn't have a great, if he stays healthy and plays every game, all those things, and doesn't have a great season this year, it will be shocking, right? Like yeah. people yeah. will be stunned. Yeah. If you'd said after 2016, like, hey, yeah, like Jake Browning, they got their guy, right? They're going to have him for two more years. But man, <laughs> not a lot of players out there like John Ross. And yeah. they just yeah. lost him. John Ross opened up so much for their offense. He still had Dante Pettis, the second round NFL receiver. Like, you know, how many times in its history has Washington had a second round NFL receiver as its number one? So they were in better shape than most Washington teams ever. But they, what did they have after Pettis? You know, Chico McClatcher got hurt and um, they, they really were thin. Like Aaron Fuller was a sophomore. They had some really talented tight ends that they probably underutilized, but. You know, they, I don't know. It just, it, it felt like, Hey, you know, they just did it. They just got to the playoff. They got a lot of key guys back. Their schedule was really manageable. And you know, if they don't go and lose it at, uh, Arizona state, who knows, you know, they just, they had this dud of a game against a team that they should have beaten. And their only other loss was to Stanford in the regular season. So, um, that's, I don't know. That was a weird year. It felt like they underachieved, but they still made a new Year's six game. And, but by the time they were in that new Year's six game, it kind of felt like they were, well, this is a really elite defense, but man, the offense took a huge step back. So I, I don't know. They were trying to remember they, no, Jonathan Smith was still their offensive coordinator. He hadn't, he left Correct. after that year. So Bush Bush's first game as offensive coordinator is the Auburn game the next year. Yeah. So I don't know. I mean, I, this, this feels 
just having been around for both of those, like this feels like much higher expectation. And maybe it's just because of the way like our world has changed. In my mind, it's not that long ago, but it's six years and social media has exploded in a million different ways. And the way that teams market themselves has exploded. And the fact that Washington's been kind of, that's another factor. I think they've been at the forefront of, of the consciousness of college football for the last year, not just because of what they're expected to be in 2023, but because of realignment, now they're headed to the Big Ten, and it just seems like people are thinking about Washington more. Probably still not to the extent that like you would assume nationally um, for a, t- a preseason top ten team, but um, it, it, this for for terms of modern era, it feels like an all time high the the expectations this year and it's it's I mean it's difficult to compare just because of how our our kind of digital world has has changed and evolved but I don't know I, um you know in 2017 they didn't have Caleb Williams and USC to get through right that's true too that's like true USC too. was a was a pretty you know they had just come off of a Rose Bowl win the year before and they had beaten Washington the year before but they didn't have to deal with them they weren't on the schedule even in 2017 they missed them so. Um, Oregon was down, you know, Oregon was not Oregon. Justin Herbert was a sophomore and was banged up and they didn't have that kind of season. And, you know, Stanford was really their primary competition. Wazoo also, but, you know, you saw how big the gap still was between those two teams in the Apple cup that year. So it just, it wasn't, it was a, a a far weaker conference in in 2017 too. You know, the, the league was just, it it just wasn't what it is this year. Um, which is a shame because it's the last year. (laughs) Uh, it is that that is worth noting as this year gets started that this is the best the Pac-12 has been. Do I want to say ten years? I can't remember and and pinpoint the last time in in the past ten years when I thought that the league was as good or as prominent as it is right now with the number of teams, which makes it odd that this is the, this is the final year. And look, the reasons the league is disintegrating, I don't think just have to do with the quality of football being played currently. I think it has to do with economic decisions that were made and stuck with for way too long ten years ago. But it is. The term irony gets thrown around in a way that like destroys that. But there's a paradox here. There's a paradox that the best this league has been in football in the past 10 years is going to be the last year that it's a conference. Yeah. I mean, I'd, I'd say last year was really good, too. Um, last season was, I want to say, yeah, I mean, last season was like the only in this modern era where Washington, Oregon, and USC were all up. Because mm-hmm. Oregon was down in 16 and 17, coincided with Washington's rise. Uh, SC was, they were they were good, not by SC standards. They, they again, won the Rose Bowl the year the Huskies went to the playoff and beat Washington at Washington. Uh, but it somehow took them like four weeks to figure out that Sam Darnold was their best quarterback. So their season was kind of shot. Um, and there, there just hasn't really been, you know, Washington was down from Oh three Oh four to Oh nine basically. And even when they got back to being a bowl team, they were not anywhere near competitive with Oregon. And so, I mean, those, those three programs all being good at the same time, um, it's rare. And, you know, going way back in the day when USC was Washington's primary rival in terms of actually competing for championships in the Pac-10, Oregon was years away from being competitive at all. So that's God, kind of a so great. Yeah, so you, awesome. you, I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> that so this is that's like this so is like fantastic. a special two year window for that reason. And all three of those teams are going to be in the same league going forward. So that'll be interesting to track too. But that's a factor. I mean, just having to having to deal like if Washington wins the league when USC and Oregon are both up, you could make a case that like. It, this could be one of their most impressive conference championships they've ever won if if they pull it off. Yeah. Well, here's hoping. Uh, we uh we got off to a great zero and one start with our Pac-12 picks. I know. <laughs> oh, the- Hold on though. I've never. There are a few times where I'm as happy to be as wrong as as I am about that though. <laughs> Dude, USC's defense. <laughs> 
how is Alex Grinch still employed? Like, how is that? (laughs) I watched the first two possessions for San Jose State. I'm like, USC looks bad. Their defense looks bad. I still pick them to win the conference just because, oh, my God, their offense. Is it going to be enough? We'll see. <laughs> None of that. They're not really. Te- they're not really tested until their like last five games, and that's that's a really rough stretch. They got to go to Notre Dame. They got to, They got Washington. They got Oregon. They got Utah. But yeah, the the defense just looks the same. It's just, it what, looks six exactly new starters. The same. Five of them are transfers, and they're really good players. <laughs> like I, it just looks the same. The big yeah. plays. Guys are open. Yeah, and that was that was San Jose State. Now San Jose State. It's a commuter. Now their their quarterback was the preseason Mountain West Player of the Year. So, still San Jose State. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Still San Jose State. Uh, That was wild to me. I was I thoroughly enjoyed that. What did you think of Zachariah Branch? He's electric. He's the kind of athlete that you expect to have at USC, right? Like that's when you look at it, you're like, that's the kind of game breaker talent that 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 school is always going to have. Yeah, he looks really really good. Yeah, he that guy looks like I mean, if he stays healthy and everything, like he that dude could be in the Heisman conversation someday because he's so he he ran a 10-3-3 100-meter dash in high school. When I when I looked at him and this some of this is is size-wise, like the immediate frame of reference was Deshaun Jackson. Yeah. And like some of that is Deshaun Jackson's from Long Beach Poly and 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 Branch is not. Um but watching him, he's a pretty electric player. There's no doubt about that. And he's like, you know, that room, Dorian Singer, Taj Washington, Mario Williams. They got that Raleigh Brown kid who was really good last year. And it's they kind of like don't really know what he is. Is he a running back? Is he a receiver? Are they going to play him in the slot? He didn't even get on the field till the fourth quarter. And like that was a question for Lincoln Riley this week. Like, why didn't Raleigh Brown play? And so they they have guys like that who like can't even get in the field right now. So that's like, I just see it. I don't, I don't see an elite defense in the pac 12. And I just look at that offense and they have, they have everything right. They have a returning Heisman winning quarterback who is an elite passer, who is this magician with his legs can extend plays. He's mobile, can pick up yards. They got two really good running backs. They're loaded at receiver. So they might have to score 58 points a game, 56 points a game to get through unscathed. But, man, that that offense is uh, is something else. It's a shame they couldn't cover the 30 and a half. But. <laughs> Never been so happy to be wrong. We've got a lot of games this week. We start, are we going to pick the Thursday night game? Yeah, let's do it. So there's, there's three games before uh, we even get to Saturday. Um, big one, big one for the Utes. They host the Florida Gators. Cam Rising's availability is somewhat in question. The line on this has moved. It opened at Utah minus nine. I'm using the Vegas Insider consensus here. It's currently Utah minus six and a half. I'm going to pick the Utes. I'm, I'm picking the Utes in this one. I don't feel great about it, but I'm picking the Utes. Um, I'm going to take Florida. Mm-hmm. And I don't think I'd... Yeah, I mean, I don't think I'd pick Florida straight up uh, necessarily, but six and a half feels like a lot with mm-hmm. the starting quarterbacks status in question. Also, don't really know what to think of Florida this year. Um, they didn't finish great last year, and they're replacing their quarterback. But uh, I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna go with with Florida here. Next, we go Arizona State, Southern Utah. Sparky. Even though they've self-imposed a bull ban. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I'm going to have to go. I'm going to have to go hunting for a line on this one. Yeah, I don't see a line. Gosh, does nobody have a line on this? Well, what are are degenerate gamblers supposed to do if they can't bet on Southern Utah against Arizona State? (laughs) Yeah, I don't know. I don't have an answer. We should ask Jim Moore. We'll probably bet one. the little league bet bet little league world series yeah <laughs> i was giving jim a hard time about that he asked me if it, if i thought that was going to be like 
one of the things that St. Peter asked him about at the pearly gates. And I was like, no, nah, Jim, I think that's probably going to be pretty low on the list. Uh, moving on to Stanford, Hawaii. This one's been, this one's moved like crazy too. Opened at Stanford minus nine and a half, which does feel like too many points. And, uh, the Cardinal now only favored by three and a half. We'll go with. I'm going to, I'm going heart here. I'm going Hawaii. It's Hawaii's second game. We don't know what Stanford's going to be like. Uh, they've got a, their, their young coach who I know was fairly well regarded in Cooper Patagna. Cooper Patagna? How do we say Patagna. it? Patagna. Patagna. Uh, really good things to say about him. But I'm, I'm, going, I'm going Rainbow Warriors. Wow. That's, that's a pick. Uh, I'm going to take Stanford. That's a, it's a long trip, but I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm buying, uh, I'm not buying a, a quick turnaround for Stanford. I am buying that Troy Taylor can take Stanford and beat Hawaii. They did just lose to Vanderbilt. But yes, I think Vanderbilt uh, Vanderbilt is the smart school that's a little bit further along in its development. Do you see their stadium? I I heard I read about it. I that they're what <laughs> like construction everywhere and all that. Yeah, there's like a crane holding up a scoreboard. It's the most janky looking, like non serious college football production I've ever seen. TCU Colorado. Yes. Why isn't that one showing up here? Got a line 20 and a half is what I'm seeing. 20 and a half. I'm laying the lumber. Go Horn Frogs. Yeah. I think I'm a, I, I like TCU to cover that too. It's interesting team TCU. Cause they, Kind of had the miracle run last year. They won all these close games. Yep. Max Duggan sort of came out of nowhere to you know get into the Heisman conversation, and yeah, I would have been would have been interesting to see them play a team that wasn't Georgia in the national championship game. Mm-hmm. They just got waxed. That was enjoyable yeah. too, though. I don't might see be, a line. Uh, it might be tough to find a line on Portland State, Oregon. Yes, here. I was just saying, I don't see one there. Noon start. Um, Huskies, Boise State. So I was seeing 14 and a half. Yeah, I see 14. Should we use 14 or 14 and a half? 14 and a half. Halves are, right. halves are more fun. Um, My official pick for this was Washington 35, Boise State 24. Ooh. So I'm uh I'm gonna pick Boise State to cover the spread. I, I would be surprised if they pulled off the upset, but I that just two scores plus seems like a lot. Uh I'm taking Washington. I'll give the points. Is that a is that a heart pick as well? No, I think that's how it's gonna go. I I think I think Washington's offense is gonna be pretty far ahead of things. I think I I think we're going to see some fireworks early on. Uh, Cal visits North, North Texas. Texas. Eric Morris, former Wazoo <laughs> offensive coordinator, Eric Morris. Yeah, I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go Cal here, but I'm not gonna feel good about it. Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of like sneaky bullish on Cal. Um. I think that they've upgraded at quarterback and I think they've got some like interesting pieces in there. So I'm, I'm also going to take Cal. Uh, yeah. I, mm. I'm looking forward to Cal Auburn. I don't know how they're going to hold up traveling to North Texas. That's a weird, that's a weird road game for them to be playing, but uh, <laughs> it's just North Texas is a strange school on the schedule. Um, do you, do you trust the Alex Grinch defense to help cover uh, 38 not, points when USC takes on Nevada. They're not covering. I'm taking Wolfpack. Yeah. Give me the give me the 38. I like USC to win nearly all of its games this year, but uh, I don't know if I can in good conscience pick them to cover 38 points after watching their defense against San Jose State. So I'll so take Nevada. Great. Not so confident great. in that pick. Could live to regret it, but what the hell. Um Wazoo opens at Colorado State. 
game being played on CBS Sports Network? <sighs> 11 points is what I see as the spread, and that's a lot for the Kooks to be given on the road early. Yeah. I, you know, I'm sure Colorado State has improved. They're also, uh, also a program that was an abject mess. Yeah. I don't know that I buy their. I mean, I remember watching them give up like a million sacks in Pullman last year. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't know that I buy their offensive line quite yet. Um, I'm going to take, I'm going to take Wazoo. 11 points. I'm going to take Wazoo as well, in part because I just can't stand the idea of picking against the Cougs. The Cougs, the Cougs have been through a lot. I'm pulling for them. Don't think we're going to find a good line on Arizona against Northern Arizona. At uh, some point, I'm going to have to stop fading the fishes. <laughs> At some point, I'm going to have to stop um, fading the fishes. Maybe, maybe as a policy, we'll just say we're not going to pick FCS games this year. Okay, Make it yeah, nice that's and a good clean. One. Yeah, okay. Is Coastal um, Carolina FCS? They're not, no. Uh, they've been a pretty good program lately. UCLA is yeah. favored by 14 and a half. I'm, I'm going to take Coastal Carolina. I'll take the points with Coastal Carolina. Okay. Uh, Do you see who UCLA is starting at quarterback? I didn't. Who are they starting? Ethan Garbers. Really? Yeah, he won the job. Sounds like the other guys might play though. So we'll see if, if Dante Moore gets on the field much. Uh, I'm going to take UCLA at home. Um, I think they they'll have a pretty reliable running game. Don't know what to think about their defense quite yet, but I'll uh, I'll give them the benefit of the doubt here. Oregon State opens uh, on Sunday, twelve thirty yes. Sunday, at San Jose State. San Jose and, State, which lost by 28 to, to USC. Yeah, Oregon State's getting... favored by 16 and a half. Mm-hmm. And this is at San Jose State. I, I'm taking the Beavs because I think, I think the Beavs are better than USC. No, I don't think the Beavs are better than USC. I think the Beavs will beat San Jose State by more than USC did, though. I'm taking the Beavs and laying the points. I'm going to take Oregon State also. Um think uh just think Damian Martinez will be too much to handle. Curious to see how much DJ Uyunglele runs the ball, how much they try to kind of leverage his his size and and mobility in their running game. Um obviously also what he looks like trying to upgrade their their passing game, but uh I'm going to go with the Beavs. Um say who say pod up to 218 ratings on Apple Podcasts, Ooh. still holding on to that five-star marker. Big thanks to Birdman85425 for his review on Friday. Bow down. This is a great podcast for all things UW. Thanks, Birdman. Simple, thanks, Birdman. Um, enjoy the game. Enjoy the game Saturday, wherever you watch it, whether you're at a Husky bar in, in New York City or uh, making By the trip. Ill, they, I think it's what expect, it's <laughs> Expect a crowd of sixty six to sixty eight thousand at Husky Stadium for their opener. So should be a fun atmosphere. Say who? Say pod. <laughs> we'll talk to you next week. Did that motherfucker?